Hi, Nate. To continue our Explorers Club series, today I want to take you on a bit of a good old-fashioned adventure. Well, I'm intrigued. What do you mean by old-fashioned, though? Well, we usually talk to people in this series about exploration and discovery, whether that be through space, the poles, mountaineering, etc. But our guest today comes to us with a bit of a different perspective. He's rediscovering as opposed to discovering. He's combing through history to provide context to some of our cultural touchstones. Sounds impressive. How is he doing that? One word, shipwrecks. We uh, did a lot of survey work in that bay, and nothing was coming up. Nothing. I, we needed to get into that beach. And the day, of the, the day that we were going to land on that beach was incredibly high surf. And so we had to hike across the island to get to that bay. And that was a five-mile hike. So our expedition turned from an aquatic to a land expedition (laughs) that day. Um, We crossed mountains to get to the bay. But I knew as soon as we got there, when I saw the similarity of the sketch done by that survivor and seeing that same angle, I knew that this was the bay. And immediately we started, uh, as the uh, tide started rolling out, We started taking our metal detectors and surveying the area where the low tide was, and things were really popping. And pieces of metal started materializing, and what we could determine what looked like the ship's paddle wheel axle started taking uh, form in the surf. And as we were looking in that area, other uh, archaeologists were combing the areas above the high tide mark, and that's where they discovered the, uh, the human skull. And so when we put all of this together that day, and uh, we radioed over to uh, Roberto Junco, who's the director of INA, he said to me, congratulations, you found the independence. And I tell you, I did two tequila shots that afternoon yes. on the hike back. <laughs> it was an incredible feeling and an unbelievable discovery. Hi, everyone. You are about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, the show where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. We've been doing a series profiling some incredible adventurers from the Explorers Club who are pioneering research in their respective fields. And it sounds like today is no exception. Callie, mind telling us who this week's trailblazer is? Not at all. Today we are speaking to Peter Tattersfield. As I mentioned, Peter has an awesome story for us today about his work finding the shipwreck of the steamship Independence, which sank off the coast of Baja, Mexico in 1853. And you mentioned there's an important cultural connection to his findings, right? That's correct. But first, let's get into the background of how the SS Independence shipwreck came to be. So I have to take you back to 1853. It's the height of the gold rush era. And uh, steamships were used to transport miners um, up from, well, down from New York, down to Nicaragua on the East Coast. And then there was a land bridge um, uh, crossing uh, Nicaragua to the West Coast of Nicaragua, where another steamship would transport them up the West Coast up to San Francisco. And the SS Independence is providing that service on the West Coast, leaving from San Juan del Sur in Nicaragua, heading up to San Francisco. And in 1853, in February the 16th, it wrecked off of Isla Margarita on some rocks that are on the very southern tip of this island. 
And uh, the captain, this happened very early in the morning, okay. very early. The captain uh, claimed that he thought what he saw were whales when in fact there were uh, uh, waves smashing against rocks. Oh, and he impaled the ship against these rocks. He was able to back it off. And, uh, but he knew that the ship was mortally wounded. Um, he's a gentleman by the name of Captain Sampson. He didn't know the waters very well. He was carrying over 400 passengers and 60 crew that day. And he, was, he tried to make the island, try to get to a beach where he could ditch the ship, save the crew and passengers. And in that process, he found a bay, a cove, about four miles from the initial impact. And in the, while he was attempting to beach it, he smashed into some more rocks and the boilers exploded. And all of this is happening at about 6.30 in the morning on the open ocean side of Isla Margarita, which is Pacific surf, high waves, cold, cold water, high winds, panic ensued. Yeah. And uh, 400 people uh, had made a choice. They either had to swim because there was only one lifeboat and fight their way into the surf to get to shore or they were lucky enough to get on board that one little uh, lifeboat and make it to the beach. Over 130 passengers were killed. And uh, there was one member of the crew. We've read and done research. He is uh, credited with saving over 90 passengers that day. Uh, He swam back and forth. He commandeered the lifeboat and went back to save more passengers. Wow, over 400 people on board and 90 passengers saved by one sailor? Who is this guy? Wait for it. This gentleman was an engineer by the name of Tom Sawyer. (laughs) No way. Like Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer? The very same. So that's the cultural context. Right. But I still had to ask him about the why of it all. Tom Sawyer is a major benchmark in American literature, but is that the only reason to look for the wreck? Well, the the, the key attraction in this wreck is that cultural connection. It was an incredible tragedy at the time. I want to say one of the worst maritime accidents in Mexico's history, with over 130 people killed. It's during a very prominent time in uh, U.S. history, during the gold rush era. And that west coast of Mexico is littered with uh, steamships, literally from uh, Nicaragua all the way up to San Francisco. It's incredible the amount of wrecks that litter the Pacific coast of the United States. And it brings forth that, that spirit of uh, entrepreneurialism that the American spirit has, that they're willing to gamble everything in order to pursue their destiny. And a lot of people didn't make it. So these survivors that Tom Sawyer saved, what happened next? Imagine, 1853, you're landing on a desolate island, over 200 passengers. There's no water, there's no shelter. And uh, things are looking pretty bleak. The thing that saved them is that uh, the island is a natural barrier to Bahia Magdalena. It's uh, Isla Margarita and Bahia Magdalena is on the Pacific coast of Baja California. It's about a six-hour drive from Cabo San Lucas, but on the Pacific coast. Very barren, not a lot of development out there. And in 1853, much like it is today, Every year, the California gray whales migrate to these bays to procure their, their calves, strengthen them, and prepare them for the journey up to Alaska. 
Today, it's a tourist attraction. People uh, go to visit this bay to see these whales. In 1853, it was hunting grounds, and that's how they were rescued within three days. They were transported up to San Francisco, and it was there that uh, Tom Sawyer said that the life of the sea was, he'd, he'd seen enough, and uh, he joined the local fire department. And, uh, and during that time, while he was a fireman, he became acquaintance with a local uh, reporter by the name of Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. And they formed an incredible relationship. They were drinking buddies, carousing, and it is what we believe is how um, uh, Samuel Clemens met Tom and used his uh, character and name uh, for the literary novels that have made him so famous. That is amazing. I've never heard this backstory before. It's pretty incredible, right? I was so curious about this expedition because it happened such a long time ago and many people have tried to look for the wreck. I really wanted to know, how does one go about even searching for something like this? So our strategy was to, to follow the route of the uh, independence from Punta Tosca where she made that first initial impact. And we dragged sonar up and down that coastline. We found one wreck, but uh, she was a steamship that sank in 1931. It had no, uh, nothing similar. And so now um, uh, we were going to focus on this one bay. That uh, there's, a, there's a great image that a survivor did of the sketch of the disaster. And you can see some geology that is very peculiar. And then we also have this factor of the, uh, the uh, mass grave where the captain ordered their burial. The, the locals told us that they knew of a bay where human remains appeared every now and then. They couldn't explain us to us why. And they also told us uh, that this bay went by the name of El Vapor, which if you translate it, it means the steamer. They didn't understand why. They didn't, knew, they didn't know how it got that name. But those were all components. So when I had the testimony of the captain telling us where he ditched the ship approximately from the point of impact, I've got the sketch that a survivor did, and I've got local accounts of uh, human remains washing up on a beach with the name of El Vapor. So it was through all these first and secondhand accounts that Peter was able to locate the wreck. After so many years, that's pretty insane. The big key element that helped us locate it was we found the testimony of the captain. You can imagine, he arrives in San Francisco, 130 people are killed. He is sued for negligence, all kinds of legal problems with the shipping line. And in his testimony that he gave, he basically says where he impaled against those rocks and what he did to salvage that boat. And Ina, prior to that discovery of that testimony, was looking on the inside of the bay. And so when we found that testimony, we redirected them and focused, had them focus on the outside of the bay on the open ocean side of the island. And so our search became much narrower and we were able to locate her. So they find the ship. What do you think they do next? Other than some tequila shots, I'm not really sure. Go treasure hunting? Would they try to bring it out of the water? We've uncovered it, we found it, and we know where she is. Extracting it, excavating it is a multi-million dollar affair. Um, uh, we're not sure we're gonna go down that route. Uh, she's in a very desolate location. Um, uh, she's literally resting almost right on the beach itself. 
when she caught fire, she drifted up and the winds and waves have taken her to a point where now she is uh, really resting in between the high tide and low tide mark. Over now 170 years, she's been decimated. She's broken up and she's very much buried in about a meter worth of sand. But some of it becomes exposed during uh, very extreme low tides. We have found, well, let me take you back to the day uh, when the incident took place, 70 bodies washed ashore that day. And the captain ordered their burial above the high tide mark. And so we were able to locate that mass grave. There was literally a skull that was exposed from uh, sand and beach erosion. And so we've located that, uh, the location of the mass grave. And our intention is to go back and retrieve one of those skulls and perform DNA and facial reconstruction on her. But actually removing parts of the ship, uh, we might think that the best place for her to be is right where she's resting today. The way that Peter is able to find balance between exploration and preservation is really, really impressive. I feel like we have this expectation that some people in his line of work are more interested in what they can find physically from these kinds of wrecks, but Peter approaches his work with a lot of respect for the people who were present during the wreckage, the locals who helped him locate the wreck, and the natural environment. You protect what you love. Okay. And if you visit these sites... And you combine that with a combination of uh, making contact with the local folks in those areas. It instills this level of protection with you. In the, the case of Isla Margarita and the SS Independence, we have built a strong relationship with the local fishing village of Alcatraz. And through them, we're going to build a little coastal uh, nautical museum wow. for them that's going to showcase the many wrecks that they have in their waters, in the hopes that in the future it will help diversify their economy, they'll bring in a sustainable tourism model, people will want to go visit those sites, they'll want to go dive these wrecks, and there will be nobody who will be more inclined to protect those sites than that community. We're only there two, a week, two weeks out of the year. They're there 365, 24-7. They have every... Uh, inclination to protect it. And so it's our hope that if we instill this model of uh, helping to develop sustainable tourism for local fishing communities, that they'll be able to diversify their economy and we gain the protection of the sites so that other folks and people can enjoy these uh, sites for generations to come. Definitely not a cutthroat treasure hunter. I'm really inspired by his passion for history and the compassion that he approaches his work with. I guess my main question is, for our future explorers, how does someone get into this line of work? Well, I can't speak for everyone, but Peter knew that this is what he wanted to do from a young age. My mother, when I was eight years old, gave me my first subscription to National Geographic. And every year in my Christmas stocking, I get my renewal. Okay. And uh, it's always been part of my... Uh, my persona. I have a spirit of exploration within me. I never sit still. I have been diving since I was 13 years old. 13? Yeah. 
And uh, I hold multiple uh, technical diving certifications. I've okay. traveled all over the world. And uh, for the last 30 years, I've been involved with INA, which is the Institute of National Anthropology and History, mm -hmm. based in Mexico, their Marine Archaeology Division. And I help organize and participate in uh, major archaeological finds underwater in Mexico. Um, uh, that jump between being a diver, an explorer, a historian, to me, has been a very natural fit. And uh, it's exposed me to great discoveries. Um, uh, it's broadened my diving profile tremendously. I don't get to choose where these sites are or where these wrecks are. Um, uh, I've dove in the caves of the Yucatan. It's, uh, it's that spirit of exploration and discovery that uh, fuels a passion within me. Not only has he been pursuing this work since he was a kid, Peter also has some great advice to both his own kids and anyone out there who is interested in growing up as an explorer. I'm lucky. My wife's a teacher. Okay. And so I have an audience. Uh, every year I give two or three lectures uh, in different schools, and we talk about uh, discovery and exploration. And listening to their questions and seeing their eyeballs when I'm giving these lectures, I know I'm hitting their hearts. And uh, what ends up happening is that it's not just the kids, but the parents also are very, very motivated. I think that history draws a lot of people. Um, uh, and when you add that nautical passion to it, it really inspires these uh, kids for discovery. Um, uh, hearing what has transpired and how I'm able to touch it and bring it to them is uh, really, really motivating. But I keep telling them from, uh, from uh, as early on, get outside. You're not going to discover anything sitting in a classroom. You'll learn about it on the internet, but you got to go and get your feet wet. You got to go hike. You got to be outdoors. And uh, you're not going to, unfortunately, and I tell them this, a lot of places where we go, there's no Hyatt. There's no Hilton Hotel. No, no McDonald's. No one's putting a chocolate on your pillow at night. You might be swimming, swinging from a hammock. You'll be communing with uh, a local community. Um, in many cases, these are indigenous communities, local fishing communities that house us and feed us. And we're very grateful for them. They, uh, they're little fishing communities. They become our guides. They know the waters better than anybody else. And it becomes an incredible interaction. And exposing young kids to that is also an unbelievable experience. And so I encourage them to get up and get out. To wrap this up, the reason Peter was able to pursue this expedition was because of the Explorers Club. I'll let him explain the club's role in his research. Without it, we wouldn't be sitting here today. That's fair. And uh, they've been in instrumental. And uh, they awarded me this uh, tremendous opportunity. And with that... I was able to pull together um, uh, people knowledgeable in, in the Gold Rush era steamers, archaeologists with a heavy focus in that era, and uh, we were able to pull a team together and head out to this site in this region for the better part of two weeks to search for the SS Independence. Without those funds, um, uh, we I would have I can say that we would have found it, but we would have found her over a period of two years. We just hit or miss. Instead of two weeks of concentrated effort, uh, we were able to locate her uh, very systematically and very quickly. 
Um, uh, without that, um, we certainly would have found her, but it would have taken us many, many trips, many, many uh, uh, visits out there. Well, Callie, you were right. That was an amazing adventure to hear about. Thank you so much to Peter Tattersfield for speaking with us today. He really made me want to go out into the world to find some sunken ships. And maybe also read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Anyway, we'll be back next week with some new episodes of our Explorers Club series where we chat with more incredible adventurers. I'd heard a legend that there was a lost city somewhere in the Mesquitia jungle that people have been looking for for several hundred years since the days of the conquistadors. Nobody has found it. So I mounted an expedition in 1994 with some colleagues and actually with an adventurer who told me the legend. And we went looking. We had a great time, quite an adventure, but we did not find a lost city. However, in that journey, we came upon a large boulder up in the mountains of the rainforest, you know, long, several days of paddling canoes and hiking and trudging. And there was this wonderful carving of a man wearing a strange headdress or hat. He had a look like a stick and it looked like a sack with seeds or something falling out of it. It was quite beautiful. And it's in a part of the jungle that you could only see maybe 20 feet in front of you. Um, and I went, what's this doing there? Until next time, stay curious. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery executive producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Discovery coordinating producer is Krishna San Nicholas. This show is hosted by us, Callie Gade and Nate Bonham. Our showrunner is Matt Mayer. Our writers are James Lynch and Jordan Trout. Our researcher is Thomas Martin Messersmith. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Callie Gade. And I'm Nate Bonham. We'll see you next week.